And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage from the M.A. Mortensen Company and current NAOP President, Josh Caldwell. Testing, testing. As much to see if the mic is working as to see if you're listening. Testing, if you're here and you can hear me, eyes up, ears up, that's what I tell my boys on the soccer field. Please, give me some sort of an indication that you're alive and breathing. Are you here today? You, thank you, Utah. Welcome to NAOP Symposium 2023. I'm excited that you're here today. My name is Josh Caldwell. I represent Mortensen Salt Lake City as our business development executive. I also am NAOP Utah's current president. And I get the honor today to be your guide through what is going to be an adventure of a symposium. As you find your seat, and most of you it looks like you have, I'm proud to tell you that this is the high watermark this year, this event for all of the previous symposiums that we've ever had. So thank you in advance for being interested and being a part of this industry, but also being a part of today's event because this is the most attended symposium event that NAOP Symposium has ever had. So quick round of applause and thank you for that. <laughs> Ultimately what that means is that you have more opportunities at this event today. You have more opportunities for speakers. You have more opportunities for engagement. You have more opportunities for content. Basically, you have a lot more opportunities today in this event than any other symposium you've been to, and that's going to show up in terms of the quality of the content, in terms of the networking that you're able to do, in terms of the panels that you're going to be able to listen to. We've got a lot of surprises and changes in store for you today, so please buckle up, keep your arms and legs inside at all times, and let's get the show going. So every year, the incoming NAOP Symposium has the opportunity to define what the theme for their term is going to be. And those of you that know me will not be surprised at all, but those of you who don't are going to get a little taste of who I am today and what that means for this event. The theme is meant to challenge, it's meant to support, it's meant to inspire and to inform, it's meant to be the guide for the board of NAOP as we move through the year and as we program the events and as we curate the opportunities for our members to learn, to grow, to educate, to network, and do all the things that are the value propositions as to why you are a member for NAOP Utah. My theme is disruption. It manifests. It manifests in the way that we approach the year's events. It manifests in how we advocate. It manifests in the entire real estate community and how this market continues to evolve. Even the changes that you're going to see in the events today and the program for symposium are meant to be a disruption to what you're used to. 
because we're in changing times, because we've all just made it through the last couple of years, and it seems like every time we're saying we just made it through the last couple of years, because we're in a tumultuous industry, it's cyclical and we all know that, which means we embrace change and we embrace evolution. And one of the beautiful things about Utah is our ability to disrupt the status quo while simultaneously disrupting resiliency in the face of challenges. Overall, Utah's real estate landscape can be attributed to a combination of disruptive factors. We have a supportive business environment, a culture of innovation and entrepreneurship. We have a commitment to resiliency and long-term planning. These traits have helped Utah to disrupt traditional economic models while also weathering economic challenges and emerging stronger on the other side. To you, I submit this. Utah's biggest differentiator is our resilience. We disrupt challenges by way of our strength and our stability. It's our sturdiness in the storms that afford us the ability to respond with appropriate innovation and flexibility. Our industry is built upon disruption and Utah has figured out how to weather that storm. Whether economic crises, population swings, murder hornets, or earthquakes, even throw a couple of pandemics at us, and Utah doesn't resist what's possible, we redefine it. You're unique, and so are your financial needs. That's why Zions Bank offers advanced tools and dedicated services designed to meet you where you are, no matter where you find yourself. It's just one of the many ways we're investing in you. Zions Bank is for you. As we begin today's adventures, please join me in giving a round of applause to a number of folks who have made everything that we are going to witness today possible. First of all, our symposium committee. We couldn't have done this without you, so thank you committee. Quick round of applause to everybody on the symposium committee. Also, to all of the board of NAOP, to the members of NAOP, Quick round of applause, thank you. But I think also the biggest round of applause, both to our sponsors, who at the end of the day are truly the ones who allow for us to be able to put on events like this, in a venue like this, with all of the things that you're gonna to witness today. So thank you to our sponsors, and you're gonna hear from a lot of them today. Thank you, sponsors. Round of applause. Last but not least, thank all of you. Whether you're a member or a sponsor or just an individual interested in real estate, all of what we're doing today, from the panels to the exhibits to all of the conversations that you're gonna have and all of the education you're gonna gain today, all of that value comes from you. So last round of applause at this moment, please. Look at your neighbors and thank everybody here because we couldn't do this without all of you. So thank you all. Okay, 
Real quick housekeeping. Some of you are here for CE credits. This is important, so pay attention. If you are here to get CE credits, you should have already signed up when you registered. If you did not, hurry and run up there. Walk carefully, gingerly, but hurry and run up there. Get your name on there because we're only, they, our registration people have been instructed to keep the sign-in sheet up there just at the beginning of the event. They're going to pull those sheets. And if you're not signed in, you will not be able to sign out and receive those credits. So if you want those credits and you haven't already, run upstairs, sign in, make sure you check that box. Okay, out of the way. Let's get to the show. Across the country this past year, so 2022, the total value of construction soared, setting a new record level for commercial development economic impact, meaning in 2022, new office, industrial, warehouse, and retail space generated over a trillion dollars in contributions to the U.S. economy. It generated $387 billion in personal earnings, 5.7 million American jobs, and 926 million square feet of new space to accommodate over 1.9 million new jobs. As the usher for the national real estate industry, NAOP is the leading organization for developers, owners, investors, and all of the related professionals that represent who we are here today. Please, a moment from...
I'm excited to share with you guys what all of that actually means for you. What does that mean for Utah? Well, it means this. As the state of Utah grows, so does our chapter. And all of you guys are here because of that same growth. The NAOP Utah chapter, I'm happy to announce, has reached already, I told you we had the highest amount of registrants for this event. We also have the highest amount of members that we've ever had. So we've reached a new high water mark for the NAOP Utah chapter at 272 members. So thank you again, all of you that have contributed to that. Those of you who are on the fence about joining, that's just a couple more that we could use to get over that three century mark. So I'm looking at all of you who are not members. Um, let's make it happen. Here's why. My hope is that after today, those of you in attendance who are not members will consider the value of NAOP. You will know what that means to this chapter. You will know about the advocacy. You will know about the education. You will know about the networking and the value of the people who are sitting next to you and all of the subject matter experts who are what makes this state and this market so great. The reason that we're growing is because of all of the things that you are doing. This is the place to be. As an organization, our purpose I mentioned is threefold. Advocacy, education, and networking. As we talk about advocacy, there are a couple of things that that means to us. This past year for NAOP Utah, we tracked and provided regular updates to members on approximately 50 bills affecting the commercial real estate industry during the 2022 and 2023 general legislative sessions. During the 2023 general legislative session, NAOP Utah alerted members to and then engaged with legislative leadership and bill sponsors to express concern and request study on legislation which would require purchase price disclosures upon transfer of commercial real estate and potentially have a significant impact on the industry of Utah. During the 2023 general legislative session, NAOP Utah engaged with legislative leadership and bill sponsors to support additional funding, excuse me, additional public financing mechanism for real estate development in the commercial real estate industry. And we met with Utah's federal legislative delegation to express support for the industry relative to all of the national issues and regulations. At the end of the day, we're advocating on behalf of you. And that's important. There is a lot of change happening and some of that is positive disruption and some of that is negative disruption, but having a force by way of an organization like NAOP with industry professionals who are able to advocate on behalf of our industry is an important thing. And having a voice as a member to what that advocacy looks like is even more important. So please, consider being a member. Consider having a voice. Reach out to the NAOP board. Let us advocate on behalf of what are the interests of our market. I also mentioned education. And I also talked about that by way of the continuing education credits that you can get. You can receive those at this event. We also host other events throughout the year that will allow you opportunities for continue edu ed continued education. The real education though, whether you're signing up to register for those credits or not, is what you're gonna learn by way of the quality of the content on the panels today. 
I don't know if you guys have thumbed through the program. I'm hoping the fact that we have a high watermark is because all of you are interested in some of what some of the people that are here today have to say. But there is a caliber, there is a quality that we have reached in terms of that content that I think is also a high watermark. And that, by and large, is due to the amount of talent and skill and just insight the experts that you're going to be hearing from today are bringing to you in this conversation. That's an education. We're also, one of the other things that we did was create a new website. It's all of the things, all the bells and whistles. You can certainly go there now, though I would encourage you to go there immediately after the event, or I should say after the after party. So maybe tomorrow when you should be working, but you want to learn something. Go to the NAOP website. It's got all of the features. It's incredible, but it also has a new feature, which is something we're excited about. This is the market research section of NAOP Utah's website, and it doesn't sound sexy, but when you need a one-stop shop for all of the database of information that is especially relevant to our market, to this industry, this is the place to go. Feel free to go there, download the reports, find out the information, look at what the stats are saying, but also find out who those industry experts are that are publishing that information. Feel free to reach out to us because you have information and we would love to share that information with your peers and your colleagues and this is the way to do it. We also this year created a new app. So all of the things I just talked about on the website, now you can do it on your phone. You can do it with the swipe of your thumb. This event right now, you could have registered through our app and all of our events going forward, you can find your contacts, you can check out the events, you can find the information and all of the things literally with the swipe of your thumb. It's as simple as that. You guys know how apps work. I'm not going to try and teach you like my kids try to teach me, but it is there. It's available. It's convenient. And we're proud of it. The third pillar that we talked about, and I really want to just hit on this really quickly, is to me the most important. And we're all hoping to learn something today. And we all want to understand where the advocacy comes in and how it affects us and how we can inform that advocacy. But really, at the end of the day, you're here to talk to that person. And you're here to hear from that person. We're all here because it's an opportunity for us to get out of the behind the screen day to day and hear from all of the other people in the industry who are your colleagues because that's where the real advocacy happens. And that's where the real education happens. And I'm talking about the networking that NAOP provides. So whether it's symposium or any of our monthly programs, whether it's the developer of the year event that we're going to talk about in a little bit, or the golf tournament, or my personal favorite, Neopoly, this is your opportunity to network, to build the relationships that ultimately are the foundation for everything that we're doing. So,
So we talked about a couple of the disruptions and a couple of the changes, and those of you who are familiar with NAOP Symposium from years past have already recognized some of those. Um, one of my favorite disruptions is a new change that we started this year, which is rather than um, multiple charitable partners, which we've had many over the years, and I applaud all of them, and I'm proud of all of the partnerships, but rather than every event or every month trying to figure out a new one, we decided it makes sense for us if we could partner with somebody on an annual basis. So the new president, meaning the incoming president, chooses as part of their initiative what their theme is going to be and who their charitable partner is going to be. This is mine. What's up, everybody? It's DHAM. Once again, I want to thank everybody for the love and support over these past few weeks. As you know, CPR saved my life earlier this year on the field, and CPR could easily save your life or someone you love. That's why I'm proud to announce that I'm partnering with the American Heart Association and kicking off DeMar Hamlin's 3 for Heart CPR Challenge. And of course, this one's got three steps. Step one, go to heart.org slash three to watch a short video to learn hands-only CPR. Step two, donate to the AHA to fund CPR awareness and education. And step three, challenge three friends to do the same. To kick things off, I'm challenging the GOATs. LeBron James, Tom Brady, and Michelle Obama, you've all been challenged. And one more thing, make sure you share your videos on all socials and tag me and have your hearts up. Are my people from the American Heart Association here today? I think you guys are here somewhere. There we are. If you guys are able to run into the American Heart Association people today, please stop and talk to them. Hear what they have to say. And for a moment, hear what I have to say. This is unfiltered, Josh vulnerable moment. I have a heart. And if you didn't hear me, I'll say it again. I have a heart. And I know that most of us in this room do. I think most of us. But my heart tried to kill me a couple of years ago. A few years ago, I flatlined. It wasn't the first time. It was actually after a series of many times. But it was a, a bad time. For a little over 20 seconds, my heart stopped. It didn't actually want to restart. So my cardiologist rushed me to the U of U hospital. And I'm here today because of doctors and healthcare providers who were educated with the most recent practices and technologies and information to save my life. My heart is literally beating today because of technology that those experts installed in me. And I support the American Heart Association because I want those same healthcare experts. I want those same technologies. I want all of those available for my kids. And so I have a heart. If you do too, and I'm not going to presume, I'll leave it up to you, but if you do too, I want to challenge all of you to go to heart.org, learn more about how you can prevent heart disease and consider how you can donate to helping not just you, 
but your children someday too. But that's not all. That's my challenge to all of you. But I'm going to take a lead from Damar Hamlin. And I'm going to challenge three of you specifically. So eyes up, ears up. Gary Hugovin, Owen Fisher, and Steve Starks, consider yourself challenged. All of you, I expect to take a minute, do what we just talked about, learn a little bit more on your own. I'm not challenging your company as I'm challenging you. As a friend, as a person with a heart, I'm asking these individuals to find out more about what heart disease looks like. Consider how you can inform the education of that disease and then consider donating. And then I challenge you to challenge three people that you know. Thank you. Okay, my second favorite disruption of the year. Every year, we have a storied tradition called Developer of the Year. This is an honor that the chapter bestows upon a developer, a company, or who shows, who exemplifies in a manner of different ways positive change by way of their impact on our, not political, but our real estate landscape in some sort of positive, productive, unique way. Traditionally, the way that worked was we reached out, meaning the NAOP board reaches out to the membership, we collect nominations from all of you, then we, behind closed doors, debate, we discuss, we vote, and we came up with a winner. And that winner would be celebrated at a, an event where, at their honor, we would prevent them, pre prevent, present them with a golden shovel and have a grand affair. The last part of that is still true. But we've changed something, and I'm going to flip that script. So today, for the first time, we're doing it differently. Now, we, meaning the NAOP board, are not going to choose the developer of the year. You are. So the way it works is that we solicited the entire industry earlier this year for nominations for developers, companies or individuals who exemplified all of the qualities that we already kind of talked about. Who made a positive change in the real estate industry in Utah? We took those nominations, we discussed, we debated, behind closed doors, we came up with not one but three. Three finalists, and today you're going to choose of those three by way of a live vote who's going to be the NAOP Developer of the Year. So you'll notice in the program, there is a QR code. If you scan that with your phone or any other smart device, it will take you to a poll. And that poll is live from right now until 4.30, just before the end of the event. 
you have between now and then with an open poll to vote on who is going to be the next developer of the year. We'll close the votes at 4.30 and just after the keynote, we'll find out who won. But you can't do that without learning a little bit more about who those finalists are. So, if you'll all turn your attention to the screens, please learn with me a little bit about finalist number one, the Ritchie Group. What are the, what's the boxing term they, they, they punch above their weight class? Um, these guys just have unbelievably high integrity. I'm honored, by the way, to represent uh, Jacobson Construction Company in urging that uh, Richie Brothers have this opportunity to be named the Developer of the Year for NAAP in 2023. In the future for the Richie Group, I see a lot of prosperity. And the reason I think they'll be successful is because they, they treat others fairly and their projects are very successful. For the past 10 years, Salt Lake City in Utah specifically has been identified as one of the top markets in the United States. And for the past several years, the Ritchie Group has been identified as one of those top developers in the state of Utah. Their projects are being identified as the top development projects in the state. had a kid, I'd marry one of my kids after their kids, and I've got kids. But... Quick round of applause for the Ritchie Group. And, and congratulations, Ryan and team, and everybody at Ritchie Group for being named a finalist. That by itself is quite an honor. So thank you for your contributions to our industry, and congratulations. Now, finalist number two. Let's hear from Columbus Pacific. When you boil it down and you think about who's actually going to be in the space, it changes the nature of how you perceive the design of the overall space. You have to challenge your assumptions because what I want may not necessarily be what the ultimate resident or user is looking for. Our mission as a company is really based primarily on three major attributes. So the first is environmental sustainability and energy efficiency. The second is affordability and attainability. And the third is giving back to our community. We've partnered with the Community Foundation to establish the Early Childhood Alliance. It's a program that we're pushing forward to help solve the childcare gap in Summit County. Most of our projects are kind of hyper-local. We have projects that run the spectrum from affordable employee and workforce housing all the way through you know, hospitality and high-end residential. I think what I'm most proud of in all the developments that we've done are those that have 
some unique aspect that materially contributes to the fabric of the community. Slopeside Village is one of those projects. I love seeing the collaboration of the individuals that have come together and are really aligned on a passion for creating something that is better than the sum of its parts. And for us, it's really the most successful projects are the ones that look like they were always there. Round of applause for Columbus Pacific. Tony and team, congratulations. Thank you also, especially I would say the Park City landscape is changing drastically due to the efforts of Columbus Pacific. So um, nice work, everybody. Now our final finalist for the 2022 Developer of the Year, Jay Fisher. There was a period of time when Ogden just sit. You know, it just stood still and went backwards, actually. It's nothing like it was when I, when I was a kid. Nothing. Auckland's growing in the surrounding area, growing leaps and bounds. They need a place to gather and to enjoy. Real estate development for us is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We want to create projects that are going to be, you know, impactful to the cities, the counties, the state. live here. We visit here. We're going to be here. My kids are going to Weaver State University. And we got to make this cool. We got to make this environment something that, that the citizens around here want to go visit it, you know? Utah's changing. And we are really excited to be a part of that change. We have a really diverse group here. Um, we're in the 30% for female participation. We are, I believe, 14% minority. Under our Moda brand, we have about 2,000 units of affordable housing, everything ranging from deeply affordable up through the workforce, up and down the Wasatch Front. We think about the end user, we think about how we can change outcomes for people's lives. We have a, a mantra that says, when we hire people, we want to train them so they can leave, but treat them so they will stay. And I think that embodies who we are as a company. When we look at not just the community of Ogden, but this particular opportunity at Union Station. This, for us, gives us an opportunity to give that back to the community. This gives us an opportunity to take that rich history and not just celebrate it, but rebuild it and deliver that for future generations. Round of applause for Jay Fisher. Super excited to see all of you guys. Owen, Chad, and team, love what you're doing up north. We don't actually get to hear a lot about Ogden often in all of the exciting things that are happening up and down the valley, but it's very much alive and very much happening. So great to see what you guys are doing up that way. Thank you for everything you're doing. Okay. So I already explained it once, but I'm gonna say it again because I don't know that I trust all of you. It's as simple as American Idol. So think of it as NAOP Idol. Go to the QR code in your programs or on the screen right now or any time throughout the rest of the day. 
You have an opportunity to read some of their words in the magazine. You have an opportunity to go to their websites. You can go to the panels and hear from some of these developers. You can talk to them here while you're networking. Find out more, but make sure that you vote before we close the polls because, again, you determine this year, not us. So I'm looking for you guys to come up with a winner by the end of today's event. Okay. Lost our down screen. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our Spark Talk speaker this afternoon is an integrated psychotherapist, TEDx presenter, licensed clinical social worker with an MBA, a yoga instructor, and meditation teacher. Please welcome to the stage, M. Capito. Good afternoon. It is such a pleasure to be here with all of you in these bright lights. It feels like springtime up here. Now, in my experience, people who choose a career in real estate tend to be an ambitious, brave, sometimes wild bunch. Is that accurate? Do we have some wild people in the audience? Anyone super excited to party hop the skyboxes later? Let me hear you if you're excited. Yes. Okay. That excitement helps me because as an introvert, I feed off of energy of groups like you guys. And so to kick things off, for my own benefit, even as much as yours, I'm going to invite you to bring forth that wild energy that I know is right below the surface. Maybe even especially if you're not always very wild. We're in this huge arena with this opportunity to have some fun with that. So I'm going to say good afternoon again. You guys say it back in your wildest self, whatever that might be. And we're going to see if we can stir up some of that energy to kick things off into this next segment. Are we ready? Good afternoon. Hey, that was pretty good. We're going to have some fun today. So resilience has been a popular topic for the last few years for obvious reasons. But I was pretty impressed when Josh and the planning committee introduced me to the event and their vision for today, which you've heard a lot about already. Disruption, kind of calling out the elephant in the room, and this opportunity to either embrace a new reality or cling to a past that is no longer present. If we look back, at the entire evolution of our species, or perhaps more relevant, any significant periods of growth in your own personal life, we tend to find a fire that immediately precedes that exponential shift. This fire, this disruption, is our clear indicator that change is not just coming, it's already here. The burning is clearing the way such that we can only move forward. Which is why I find it kind of lovely that this has been perhaps the most shared meme since 2020. 
inspiring an entire line of cute toys, pins, badges. This one's my favorite. It was released just in time for the election. We resonated so deeply with a floating dumpster fire because we were all in it together. It was happening to everyone at the same time. The outside circumstances were surreal. And we're good at a crisis, at least a short and sweet crisis, right? So we mobilize to help our neighbors, to come up with really cute toys, to bring some levity to the situation, maybe hoard some toilet paper from the local Costco. And we can do that for a few months. But three years of experts saying, welcome to the new normal, is a different kind of overwhelm and a different call to action altogether. Now, in this point in my talks, I like to bond a little bit about the effects of chronic collective stress. This is all that stress that's going on in the background in our communities, sometimes in our own homes, that we eventually adapt to, but it's still happening. And so, I'm going to disrupt your lunch just a little bit, maybe ruffle a few comfort zones, and invite you to participate in a quick and painless poll. Are we ready? All right. If you, like me, have experienced some pretty significant periods of burnout recently, and, uh, or you know, you've been fried since you can remember, please stand up. Say, okay, be brave, set the forks down, take a stand if you've had some burnout. This is a pretty collective experience. Yes, okay, you guys are so great. Stay standing for me for just a moment. All right, next up, if you, like me, have spent more time thinking than sleeping at night about all of the stress that you have no control over, please also stand. All of our insomniacs, yes. <laughs> I know I'm asking a lot of you if you're burnt out and not sleeping. All right, another one. If you, like me, have binge-watched so many series in the past three years that you couldn't admit to how many if you tried, please stand. There's some more chairs coming up, yep. <laughs> And finally, if you, like me, have experienced this chronic fatigue thing where you're exhausted all the time and the bare minimum feels like a heroic effort, please also stand. Take a look around. The fascinating thing to me is that in this poll, both before and after the pandemic started, most people are standing. Go ahead and grab your seats. Thank you, guys. It's not that the last three years have not been remarkable in their difficulty. They have. It's just that our culture also invites us into burnout already to uh, shake it off, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Dust yourself off and go big or go home. When, of course, going big, guys, requires going home. 
to eat, sleep, get some exercise, maybe have some meaningful conversations with other human beings who have zero interest about interest rates. It's a possibility. And if we don't refuel continually, especially in the midst of chronic collective stress, we tend to lose sight of our why. We lose that passionate engagement in a purpose that can fuel us endlessly. Those days that you remember where you could tackle any big project nights on end without ever getting emotionally exhausted. So, let's break down a little bit about why that is with some oversimplified neuroscience. I'm gonna... Most of you are pretty familiar with these bad boys. You might know it, not know it from the diagram, but these are called the amygdala. And these two tiny almond-shaped pods that sit on either side of your brain are responsible for keeping us alive in a scary world. Right, so we detect a threat, and then the amygdala cue up fear and shut down the neural pathway to the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of your brain that's like, hmm, let's think about this for a little while. Since that could get us killed, we have to cut that off. Then a cascade of hormones prepare the body for fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Now, if fawn is new to you, you're not alone. That's a more recent discovery as we've studied the social nervous system. <laughs> I kind of love it. It's where some of us people please our way through a crisis. And personally, I think it's a beautiful testament to the fact that perhaps human beings have always been just as much of a threat as woolly mammoths or tigers. So, we have a threat. The body gets ready to survive, and that brings me to gazelles. Now, we're moving fast here, so stay with me. Gonna get to the gazelle slide here. Hold on just one moment. It's a good one. There we go. All right. So, if there's one thing I want you to take away from my talk today, it's that you are not a gazelle. In the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn game of survival, what are gazelles built for? Someone yell it out. Flight, right? So, the chase begins, the lion goes after the gazelle, and all those hormones kick into gear. The gazelle's every single fiber of its muscles allows it to almost literally fly away. And that is where the similarities between gazelles and us end. Now, if National Geographic had continued the footage after the exciting chase, after that part that we all like to watch, and we got to see the it's my mic, there we go. If we got to see the gazelle get away and get this second lease on life, right? It's just faced almost certain death. What would we see the gazelle doing? Grazing. Just grazing, and not in the middle of the night fill the scary empty void inside of me kind of way that some of us do. Just grazing for daily nutritional needs, as if the lion is not just a hundred yards away, waiting for another shot. Now, what do we do as humans 
conversely. We need to make sense of a crisis or the scary proverbial lion attack. That way we can feel like maybe we could prevent it from happening again. So we come up with an entire story about why the lion targeted us, and we tell all of our friends to help them survive too. We have nightmares about the lion. We lose sleep. We lose our appetite. We come into a whole anxious loop of looking for the lion around every corner. And this can be a pretty draining experience. It's also what sets us apart from every other species. We make meaning of all of our experiences. We narrate our lives. So in the midst of constant threats to our way of being, threats that are predominantly completely outside of our control, it's almost impossible to not, at some point, get a little stuck in a negative loop about how unfair or impossible or hopeless this floating dumpster fire is. Our story is the source of our suffering, but it's also the source of our evolution. So how do we rewrite the story in the moment? How do we break out of those funks to reclaim our inherent, brave, eternally optimistic, let's go launch a new project because it might work way of being? I have good news. Your brains are already wired for the adversity alchemy that fuels all innovation. Let's come back to these cute little amygdala again. You remember there are two, one on each side of your brain. Now researchers have figured out that the amygdala on the right side of my brain, that's the trigger center for all of that fear, that middle of the night speculation, and that overall grumpy outlook on how things are gonna go. And the more negative information through the news, social media, gossiping together about how hard things are, the more we feed that in, the more it triggers that loop. But the amygdala on the left side is the source of the anecdote, curiosity. So I'm going to ask you to indulge me just one more time right now and close your eyes. And after you close in your eyes, imagine the worst of your stress. Try to picture it in all of its gory detail, the thing that is most frustrating, draining, annoying, endless, the thing that is just bothering you the most today. Try to feel what that feels like inside of your body to live in that story. And keeping your eyes closed, take a deep breath in, and then let it all go. And still keeping your eyes closed, now see if you can pan out from that situation. See if you can get just above it, like you're floating above you in that pain. And put on our researcher hat and bring a little curiosity to the situation. What's really going on and why? What could it be teaching you or preparing you for? Beautiful, open your eyes. 
When we spark curiosity, we loosen that grip on whatever story has gotten in our head about what's happening in our lives, the challenges that we're facing, which turns down the volume on fear and all of those hormones that are hijacking our beautiful, creative minds. And this is what sets us apart from every other species. We can transform any experience into torture, or into an opportunity to learn, take new risks, and rewrite our reality. Our pain is the prerequisite for all of that evolution that we experience in our lives. Our suffering and paralysis, that's all rooted in our avoidance or denial of that fact. So whatever is burning in your life, your work, or in our community, what is burning away such that we can build something new in its place? And what prior fires have you already walked through that have prepared you for just this exact moment? Made you ready for being part of the opportunity to create something new? Without the fire, there is no transformation, no groundbreaking ideas, and no explosion of opportunity. So an invitation today and every day to spark curiosity. Our problems in front of us are substantial, and it's to find the solutions, it's going to take more of us than ever before to charge into those fires with a hunger to author the next iteration of who you are, or really, who we are, as we drop the fear and instead combine our talents, visions, and resources to spark something that has never been done before. And I believe we are up for that task. Thank you. It's time now for our all-star panel discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage our moderator, Executive Vice President of JLL Women's Business Network, and also engaged with Crew Network, Jamie Marsh. Jamie is joined by panel members Natalie Gochner, Associate Dean in the David Eccles School of Business at the U of U, and Director of the Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute, Stephanie Froman, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Partnerships for the Economic Development Corporation of Utah. Krista Springer, McWinney, Executive Vice President of Commercial and Mixed-Use Development. And Linda Rabbit, Brand <laughs> Construction Founder and Chair of the Board of Directors. Big round of applause for our panel.
I think we need to start every event with a spark talk. We need more of that in our, our workplace for sure. So thank you, Em. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Jamie Marsh, Executive VP with JLL, where I specialize in the office, the healthcare, and the life science sectors. I'm so excited to be here today talking about topics that you'll find interesting, including the economy, innovation, and of course the theme of this event, disruption and resilience. We have an incredibly impressive and dynamic panel here today. I'm gonna to go into 4K mode here so I can actually see. All of these panelists are experts in their respected fields. Josh had mentioned that their bios are in the printed material on the tables. So if you haven't looked at that, I would encourage you to do so. Their breadth and expertise is pretty impressive. And I think you'll understand why NAOP is calling this the all-star panel. So please take a moment to read that, but I'd briefly like to introduce our panel today. We've got Linda Rabbit right here on my right, founder and chairman of RAND Construction. Krista Springer, Executive VP of Commercial and Mixed-Use Development with McWinney. Stephanie Froman with EDCU. She's the Senior VP of Strategy and Partnerships. And Natalie Gochner, Associate Dean at the Eccles School of Business and Director of the Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute at the University of Utah. So please give a warm welcome to our panelists. <laughs> We've got a lot of information we're going to dive into today, and I'm hopeful we can get to all of it. But as you know, there is a QR code on your tables. So if you've got questions for our panelists, please, please plug those in. I will see those up here on my iPad. Try to keep the uh, dummy questions to a, a minimum, or I will have to call you out by name. Um, we're going to jump right in here and get started. So Natalie, we're going to start with you. There's a lot of uncertainty around the economy right now. There's a lot of recession chatter in our industry. Just last weekend, we saw two major banks fail. I think it's, it makes people a little nervous. So set the stage for us here. Okay. What's, give us an overview of Utah's economy. What, are there any factors bolstering us from a potential recession? How, how do you see it? Okay, that was, uh, that was a tough question, Jamie. <laughs> We're starting easy, <laughs> I, I right? will do my best. Uh, you know, that's a tough question without what happened last Friday and over the weekend and this week. Um, I kind of think of what just happened, I'm thinking of that ketchup metaphor, right? Where you have ketchup and you're trying to get ketchup out of the bottle and you're hitting it and pounding it and eventually you stick the knife up and work it out and then all of a sudden it just plops out, right? It's really a lot all at one time and messy. And I feel like that's what happened last week with this Silicon Valley Bank. Um, our Fed, uh, Federal Reserve, was already in a pickle, right? They were trying to engineer a soft landing, trying to give us price stability, and at the same time have full employment. Um, I don't think it'll surprise this crowd for many to say that uh, it's commonly understood that the Fed had some policy missteps, probably kept uh, interest rates too low for too long, waited too long to start raising them, raised them too rapidly, and then some of these unintended consequences start to pop. I don't want to be too depressing <laughs> as I think through this. Uh, so let me, let's, let's just say that it's a very uncertain, difficult time. Now let's, let, now let's think about Utah for just a minute. Uh, a pandemic is a riveting event. Pandemics change the world. They change underlying economic relationships. And we're still in the unwinding of that. 
I don't have to tell you about how hybrid work changes things. Um, but I do want to mention this. If you looked at two macro measures for how did a state do during the COVID-19 pandemic, you, you might look at a health measure and an economic measure. On the health side, think of cumulative case fatality. How many deaths per 100,000 people did a state have? Well, Utah had the fourth best or lowest cumulative case fatality rate. Big deal. We did a good job on the health measure. Now, we're a young population. That's a big reason for that. But we're young. It happened. Now, if I go to the economic side and say, how many jobs were there in February of 2020 and how many jobs today and compute that growth rate, Utah had the second best job growth. So on both the health and the economic measures, Utah did extremely well. So we have an uncertain economic environment. It got even more uncertain last week. Uh, is there a state that I'd rather be doing business in? No. Uh, are, we, uh, are we entering a period of either uh, decelerating growth or maybe even a mild recession? Yes. Can we get through it? Absolutely, and Utah's the place to do it. Now, happy to give more detail, but I'm going to throw it back to you, no, Jamie, I, and we'll I see where that. it goes. It's, your answer is spot on that there's no other place I'd rather be doing business. Utah fares, yeah, thank you, everyone. Utah fares fairly well compared to bigger markets. So, Stephanie, let's take a look at Utah a little bit. What market segments are you seeing focus on Utah, and how has that shifted over the years? Yeah, great question. So first, everybody in the audience who's an EDC Utah investor has heard this spiel already, so apologies for the repeat. Um, but the pandemic radically changed our project pipeline. So prior to March of 2020, we had maybe 40, 45% software and fintech projects. Manufacturing was under 40% of our pipeline. Pandemic hits, pipeline gets a little shaky, boom. Manufacturing goes up to 70% of the pipeline as everybody tries to de-risk and, and onshore their supply chains. Pushing that back out to today, manufacturing is still about 50% of our pipeline. So still like a major increase in how many projects, but also in the size of the projects. And uh, my favorite statistic on this is we had to recode the back end of our CRM to add another digit to the CapEx field, because we'd never seen tens of billions of dollars for a single project uh, come in before. So on the green shoot side of that, though, I want to point out that we have 20 software projects right now in the pipeline. So um, if they all made it through the weekend, and hopefully they did, <laughs> it's on the federal response, um, you know, that's good. That's, that's some trajectory back into the office market that we were excited about. And the way we respond to changes in our pipeline as EDC Utah is we try to get proactive about balance. So anyone who's involved with our organization knows we have a, a proactive recruiting program where we go into other markets and educate CEOs on Utah's business advantages before they have a project. We call it global strategy and outreach. And when we have a very manufacturing heavy pipeline, we go out and do those trips in life sciences, in tech, in fintech, and try to rebalance. You know, it's always been one of Utah's strengths that we have a diverse economy, not always, since we, since we got there. Um, but, you know, we're one of the most diverse economies in the country, which provides stability. We're not like Detroit with cars or Silicon Valley with tech. Um, and so we try to keep that moving when we choose who we're going to work with. I love that. Let's zoom out a little further to the national economy. 
Linda, you served on the board of the Federal Reserve. That is not something many people can claim on their bio, and it's certainly a topic that's really hot in the news. So without trying to put you on the spot, talk to us a little bit about your time there. What were the most impactful things or something interesting you learned there? Well, thank you, and first of all, thank you all for having me here. I, I really am honored to be on this stage with this August group, and Stephanie and I just learned that we uh, went to elementary school in the same community in Michigan. <laughs> so this is how small the world is, and getting smaller. Um, armed with Econ 101 from the University of Michigan, I was um, probably not the uh, best pick to be on the uh, Federal Reserve Board, but actually, as it turns out, um, there was a reason for it. Um, I was asked to be on the board in uh, 2008 and started my service in 2009 just as Lehman Brothers was collapsing. So for the bankers in the audience, you know all this, but I didn't really understand until I started studying the Federal Reserve that the act that uh, put it on the map in 1913, really was created to address banking panics, bank, um, banking runs on banks, in other words. And that was its first uh, man, uh, mandate. So our central bank in Washington, D.C., which I must say is, is an iconic, beautiful, um, inspiring building, houses our board of governors. And then, as you know, we have 12 um, regional banks around the country. And those are the reserve banks are the operating arm of the system. So you might be asking, how did I get on the Federal Reserve Board? That was a very, that's a good question. There are nine board members on each reserve bank. The Class A members are bankers who are chosen by bankers. The Class B members are non-bankers chosen by bankers. And the Class C members are chosen by the Board of Governors. And they're the only ones who could be, who can be the chairman of the board. So I ended up in my service being chairman of the board of one of the regional banks. The reason that um, it was, um, the, the way they do this is they want real-time information to go up through the system of what people are really seeing on the street day in and day out. And because of what I do, I can predict um, in some ways which way the wind is blowing, at least in commercial real estate. And so all these members of the reserve banks, they're their number one responsibility really is to be an ambassador to the banking system, but their number two responsibility is to give the economists real-time information so that the economists can balance that against the statistics they're seeing. Well, what you may not know is that the, my bank, the Fifth District, houses Federal Reserve IT which means if the Federal Reserve System was hacked or in any way damaged, the world economy could collapse. So it was a daunting task, but the thing that I loved the most is I got to help choose the, the first really national person for Federal Reserve IT, and that was really exciting and helpful. And I got to help them with some governance issues. I, the last thing I want to say is I, 
I would like people to be reassured whether they make good decisions or bad decisions. But these are very, very smart people. They're very smart. They're well-meaning. You know, the joke around Washington is if you ask an economist something, he or she will say, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand. So you never get a, a, a full, fulsome answer. But they debate vigorously um, to try to get to the right uh, answer. And now that their mandate has changed over the years and it's um, full employment and uh, watching inflation, this is why you're seeing so much um, in the news about, about the Fed. But I'm very proud of our central bank. And I think that um, our economy every year gets more and more uh, diverse and it, there are a lot of factors that go into the decisions they have to make. I have a feeling you're going to be really popular with this group after the event, so maybe you should have worn camouflage, Linda. <laughs> Let's zoom out a little further. Krista, I want to bring you into this. You have a background in international real estate development. You're with McWinnie now. You internationally thank you, were involved with advancing sustainability before sustainability was really even a buzzword. Um, McWinnie's got a, some great projects here. You're doing Union Station. You're doing a couple other things. How are you balancing developing historic properties while maintaining sustainability metrics, both from a financial feasibility as well as a technical one? Yeah, so green or not to green, that's the question, right? I, I get that asked a lot. Um, I think when I started uh, out doing sustainable development, um, the excuse developers used to always be able to use was, I can't afford to do it, it doesn't fit in my pro forma, I can't give investors the returns that they need to do, uh, I need to give if, if I incorporate it. And it's been interesting to watch over the last three years where the investors are now saying, if you don't do it, I'm not going to give you any capital. And so that's really starting to drive uh, both internationally and locally how if we look at development projects, um, especially from a um, those that require uh, institutional capital or family office. Um, but I think it's always a trade-off. Uh, so we, our first project here for McQuinney uh, in Utah and Salt Lake is the Red Lion Hotel site. Um, we just delivered our first phase of that, which was an adaptive reuse of 184 um, of the hotel rooms into uh, micro apartments. Um, and most of you probably saw, if you drive by that site a lot, that uh, about halfway through we paused the project for a couple of weeks. Um, that was because we found out that we were eligible for historic tax credits, um, which was quite a surprise. So uh, we paused the project. We had just started painting. Um, and then they informed us that because we were painting, that we weren't eligible for those tax credits. So, you know, we had to take a pause. Um, the first week of that pause, I had to go away um, and have a little midlife crisis to recognize that and that building built within my lifetime is now eligible for historic tax credits. So I'm sure a lot of you in this room can identify with that. Still don't know how that happened. Um, so after I pulled myself together for that, we pulled the team together and we really weighed up. It was $10 million but we couldn't paint the building. Um, but going around that uh, is a bigger development of you know, a 350,000 square foot life science building and a 36 story uh, multifamily tower. And you have these two 1970s buildings that you know, the brick is hideous. Um, and so we had to make that trade and we decided that what was best for that project was to finish painting that building and to integrate it into the fabric of what we were delivering. 
And so I lovingly now call that my $10 million paint job. So you all can go by there and, and do that. So when you take the $10 million off the table for the rest of the project, you have to get really crafty and find a way to make that up. So I've always approached sustainability from a green building capitalist standpoint. I think it's the smart thing to do and the outcome is that it becomes the right thing to do. Um, and so we're looking at doing microgrids um, you know, for power and, and reducing water and how do you get to net zero, especially here from a water standpoint. Um, but microgrids, it's the right thing to do, but the outfall is we can sell power to our tenants. Um, we can monetize that. So kind of shifting how we look at sustainability and, and trying to make those trade-offs, especially in an adaptive reuse environment, is, is the challenge. For sure. Um, from a lowly office broker per perspective, I will say that we are getting that question a lot more. So I appreciate I mean, sustainability has been around for a long time, but we are getting that question more from our tenants for the buildings we are looking at putting them in. So thank you for leading the way on that. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the theme of this event, disruption and resilience. Linda, I'm going to come back to you. You have a great deal of experience with both, having built a national construction company from the ground up. Rand just opened its office in Utah. I think that puts you guys in 26 states now, so congratulations and welcome to Utah. Uh, Utah's historically a pretty tight general contractor market. What drew you to Utah and why now? Well, thank you for that easy softball question. Um, it, when you look at the statistics, uh, it's as you mentioned, uh, Utah is a happening place, as they say. It's very attractive, market stability, diverse. I can go on and on, you've heard it all. But what I liked the most about the market, what attracted me, was how tight-knit the community is. And I can only explain that by telling you a story. Uh, when I started my first construction company in 1985, it was the biggest boom in, in the Washington metropolitan area. And there were cranes everywhere. And uh, all these big construction companies were coming in and gobbling up all this wonderful real estate uh, construction. And I started this company with another woman. We were the first woman-owned and woman-founded construction company in Washington, and we did all the little projects. But people were so appreciative that we, d we would answer their call, because others weren't, that we built great relationships. But in my industry, I had, as you can imagine, a little bit of a hard time um, fitting in. And I couldn't fit in because I didn't have an engineering degree or an architecture degree. And so by the time I started in 1989, my mentor, a man I worked for at KPMG, said, you're going to do well, so as you do well, do good. And get involved in your community. Get, get active in your community. So when I saw that this was a tight-knit community, I thought to myself, well, then our values are aligned. So to give you an example of that, um, we, I was um, on a board with the uh, Barney Sorensen, who was the 
um, CEO of Marriott Corporation in, in the Washington area, their world headquarters, which start, Marriott started in Washington. And he and I were on a board together, and he said, you know, Linda, we really want to look for a, a new image for ourselves. We competed against two very large, very powerful organizations. And because I had a relationship, and because I, I was so involved in the community, we were chosen. It was the largest contract we had done to date for a tenant project, $110 million is a lot of tenant work. And we're still there helping them. So I am such a believer in the community. And that's why I like this city. We have been told that it's time for, it, that it's a good time to have people come in. And I, I hope those of you who told me that were correct. But um, it, you have been open and embracing so far. And I, we've been told it's time for some new players. And here we are to help you in any way we can. You almost sound like a Utah, Linda, so there's always a place for you if you need a house here. Stephanie, Utah and its people are known for being resilient, but you don't practice resiliency without hardship or hurdles. You work with all type of companies looking to come into Utah. What are the headwinds companies see when they are when they're approaching Utah and how do we overcome that? Yeah, great question. So I don't have to name the headwinds because everybody in this room who's lived here for more than five minutes knows what they are. Utah's changed a little bit. We have more traffic. We're having some questions about water sustainability. Um, we're having more intentionality around making sure that the good things that are happening in Utah are reaching into all of the parts of the state that um, sometimes don't get the attention, the rural parts, the multicultural communities. And so, you know, people know about those things. Those things make national news. We get some of those questions. But what I'd really like to focus on is that I'd still rather be an economic developer in Utah than any other state in the country because we have the raw materials to solve those things. And the way I want to talk about that today is not just my opinion, but the fact that that's really what we hear from people that we bring into town. So kind of like what Linda just said, um, EDC Utah hosts a FAM tour of national site selectors every year during the Sundance Film Festival. We bring in experts whose job it is to move multi-million dollar corporate expansions around the country, and we try to juice them on Utah, make sure that they are prepared to uh, recommend Utah to their clients. What they pick up on are some of the things that I think we define ourselves by as being core advantages. So the first one is that talent wants to live here. People want to live here. It's a beautiful state. We have amazing outdoor recreation opportunities. We're more expensive than we were a few years ago, but you can still raise a family and do well. Um, the second one is something that I actually walked in from the parking lot with Jeff Palmer from Layton Construction. I can't see past these lights, but I know he's out there somewhere. He mentioned this, and I was like, dude, you stole my thunder, because I was going to say that on stage. Um, but we have this sense of teamwork here that is palpable to people that aren't from this market and come in. And Linda just mentioned a little bit of that. These site selectors said, you know, we walk into a room here, and we can tell that the, the state and the local and the public and the private, you guys actually know each other and collaborate when we're not here. And that's, that makes a difference. And then the third piece Josh mentioned in his opening remarks, and that is that 
we are future focused and intentional around the way that we set policy in Utah, the way that we make in, intentional investments in Utah. And we're so lucky to have the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute and Envision Utah and the new Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State who are using data to advise our policymakers on how we can keep this place awesome uh, for the next you know, generation, for our kids and years to come. And um, sneak preview, EDC Utah is going to try to make a bit of a pivot that way in our next strategic plan, um, where we're going to be more conscious of prosperity in the concept of economic development. So uh, come talk to me afterwards if you have questions about that. Love it. Natalie, we're going to bring you back in. In this same vein, this is, this is a big question, and your answers may have shifted over the weekend with what's happening in the banking world, but everybody wants to hear your expertise and your perspective on the crystal ball question. When we're looking out five or 10 years, what are the biggest threats or challenges that we see here in Utah, and what are the biggest opportunities you see for us? Small question. Yeah, okay. Well, um, let's think about this for a minute. So what happened at the end of last week and the you know, adjustments that we're making, that's not what I'm worried about over a five or 10 year horizon. We'll get through this. Over a five or 10 year horizon, the thing that I'm most worried about, if we're just gonna do a challenge, I mean, we have, and Stephanie alluded to it, but we have you know, growth challenges. We have a housing shortage. Uh, we have you know, challenges with homelessness, um, you know, social mobility. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we really care about. But what worries me the most is our inability to unify politically as a nation to solve the hardest problems. And I'm gonna use a word, the lack of dignity in the way we do our public work. Now, some of you have heard of the Dignity Index. This was pioneered by Tim Shriver. Uh, University of Utah has been a leader here. In the last election, we coded, so think of political speech and things that are divisive and things that bring people together. And there's actually a way that you can code political speech to understand is it dignified or is it divisive? Is it um, does it lead to violence, you know? And a dignity index uh, goes from one to eight, and one is the least dignified, and eight is like loving your enemies kind of stuff. Anyway, we coded uh, all four of the congressional races, and uh, so the Senate race and the four congressional races. If you're interested in that, go, go look it up. You'll, you'll be able to find the dignity index. Anyway, you'll learn a lot when you start to think about how we speak matters. So in Washington right now, they're gonna try and get through this banking crisis, but right behind that is the debt ceiling crisis. That, you know, we've already hit the debt limit, now we're using extraordinary measures to keep paying our bills as a nation, but come June, July, August, September, we're gonna run out of creative ways, and this nation's gonna have a choice. Uh, do we, um, you know, honor the creditworthiness of the United States of America, or do we, royal, you know, to just shake the markets with something very um, alarming. And if you think about it, all of the problems we're worried about, whether it's housing, whether it's, you know, racial equity, uh, diversity, inclusion issues, anyway, all of the things that we think about, if we can't have civil conversations, if we can't be dignified in the way we interact, if we can't see value in the other side's point of view, we can't solve the problems. Now I'm gonna pick off what Linda and Stephanie were sharing. 
something about Utah that's interesting is we're really good at this here. And, and we actually can measure this. So in a company, you know that like a hammer is physical capital. Your equipment is physical capital. And your people are human capital, your workforce. But there's also something called social capital. Social capital is networks of trust. It's associational life. It's the ability to come together, to collaborate, to solve problems. And when we measure that quantitatively, by orders of magnitude, the state of Utah does better than any other state. So what's our biggest challenge in my mind? It's division. Uh, what's our biggest opportunity? Figuring out a way in Utah to put our social capital to work and set a national standard for how we prevent problems, solve problems, and excel and prosper. Happy to take any follow-ups, but I'll take it back to you, that's Jamie. A, it's a great answer, and I love that we can actually measure that that that's quantifiable. I think that rings true and will we'll hit a lot of nerves with people here that that's something we are thinking about, we're talking about, it comes back into business a lot, that just show up and be a good person. We gotta get back to kind of the basics. Quick follow up on that. One of the powerful things of thinking about our speech is it, it touches all of us, the way yeah. we talk. And I'll just give you one really quick example. As part of the Dignity Index, I had to code myself, uh, President Trump's speech at the National Archives on Critical Race Theory. You can go look it up if you want, but it was a very divisive, sort of painful speech, no matter what side of the political aisle on. I also read President Biden's MAGA Republican speech that was maybe three, four months ago. They both scored very poorly on the Dignity Index, and it's really revealing because we want to say that the other person is undignified and that we're dignified, but if you look closely, we're all colored in some way. Governor Cox speaks about this quite often and he, he gives great advice when he says go turn off your news and just go be a good neighbor and I think that rings true to a lot of people certainly in this audience. Let's switch gears a little bit. Krista, I'm going to come back to you. Let's look at an industry sector that's emerging here that's near and dear to my heart, life science. This year JLL ranked Salt Lake City as a top 10 market across the country. Last year we were number 12 so we're moving up which is great. McWinney is actively contributing to the ecosystem here, most notably with your Six South project that you were just touching on. Give us a little bit of your perspective on this. Can you speak to how the life science scene is Utah, in Utah is evolving and how developers like McWinney are playing a part in this? What, what does the lab of the future look like here in Utah? Sure. It's one of my most favorite topics. Um, life science is, I think, one of the best, most exciting disruptors that Utah has. Um, outside of the state, when you start talking about uh, life science here, um, I think people tend to think about life science in regard to biotechs and in, in regard to pharma. And there's more than that. You've been, I think, what, number three in med devices or number two, number three for forever, I mean, it's for a very long time. Um, and I think there's a convergence in science that's coming, which is the merging of tech and AI and machine learning and science. Um, I think recursion um, is, is kind of a good example of that and some others. And there are very few states which can boast the, the number one tech transfer program, uh, which is the U has, um, and can also then boast a very educated workforce and a state, a local government, um, and industry sector who is so 
passionate about this and is willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Um, I was actually working on an ag tech innovation district in Kansas City, and someone actually mentioned Utah and how, how well organized and how much life science is going to happen here. Um, I meet with a lot of um, institutional uh, investors on the equity side. Um, they all start off with, oh, yeah, Utah, they're, you know, we, we can't put life science there. And then you start to describe the fundamentals, which they haven't taken the time to understand. And they're all like, where can I sign up? How do I get involved? I think the, the biggest challenge that we have here as an industry and each of us sitting in this room is capital markets have turned. Um, they're, they're very conservative. Um, the market, and correct me, Jamie, maybe you have the updated stats. The last time I looked, there's 2 million square feet of life science lab users who need space. And we have zero. Um, but we don't have debt and equity who are willing to spec that. So I think our biggest challenge is, is it could pass us by. Um, I think the state incentives that are, are willing to, to provide and at a local level as well is, is amazing. And then we have the incentives of um, great labor force, um, you know, low cost of labor, and really low cost of, of buildings themselves um, and, and rent, which is, is pretty unusual um, compared to the, the either side of the coasts. So I think from a, a, our industry, um, what makes life science buildings great is building buildings that can be highly efficient, but also make people very effective. And so it's focusing on how do you create those environments where a life science company take, could take 10 years and a billion dollars to get a medicine to market. How do you use space? How do we get smart about space to help them speed up that process? Because space is actually a, a pretty big detractor for that. Um, and unfortunately, if we keep taking buildings that weren't designed as life science space and retrofitting them, you're not getting to that true effectiveness of space. So I think, you know, spec life science if you if you want to catch catch something that's going to be the, the next wave here in Utah. I love that answer. And I have clients in the audience that I hope are listening to that because I've been beating that drum for a while now, some spec life science space. But I'm very bullish on the life science market here in Utah. And you're spot on that real estate is our biggest gap. We've got the talent, we've got the funding, even though capital markets are a little shaky right now, those two things are harder to duplicate than real estate. So we've got the fundamentals here, so thank you for that. You know, let me just jump in and say that we hear the exact same thing from the clients that are looking at Utah, yeah. so we're totally aligned and I want to have coffee and talk about it more. Sounds good. <laughs> and that. I'd like to just add, the only time that you have growing pains is when you're growing. So thank goodness that we are in communities that are growing and these and these problems are difficult and they're, and they're hard to solve, but at least we're growing. Absolutely. Krista, I'm going to stay here with you. Tell me a little bit about McWinney's vision for the state, for Utah. You're, you've entered the market here. Is it mostly life science focused? What are, what are the, the projects you guys are going to be working on, and how do you see Utah fitting into what McWinney wants to build here? Yeah, so for those of you who aren't familiar with, with us, um, we are a privately held development company that was started in, in uh, Colorado by two brothers. Um, we stayed in Colorado for a very long time, um, did lots of really great placemaking. That's really what we focus on quite a bit. We delivered the dairy block um, in downtown Denver, um, as well as we did the Union Station redevelopment there. Um, and it, on the heels of that, we started to, to 
look outside of our Colorado borders. Um, and we spent a lot of time looking at mega regions, um, which I know have been talked about for quite some time, but you know, there's, there's 11 or 12, depending on how you categorize them, where people are gonna live in the future and where economic development's gonna go. And within the front range mega region is Utah. Um, and really, when, you, when we looked at Utah and looked at the fundamentals, um, we got very excited about it. We spent a long time just patiently waiting to find the right project that we can really bring our placemaking um, and bring our ability to create community and, and weave into the fabric of the community. And then we spent a lot of time listening. When we showed up here, we didn't intend to build a life science building, um, but that was the need and that was the gap and, and an opportunity we could respond with for our Six South project. So I think in regard to where are we heading from now? You know, we, we were just awarded with um, Jay Fisher Companies as our JV partner, um, the redevelopment of Ogden Union Station. I'm not going to speak on that because we have a panel on that. I'd encourage you all to, to show up to that. Um, but we just, you know, really want to listen and, and Salt Lake is where Denver was um, probably 10 or 15 years ago and I've heard that from a lot of you. Um, but Denver made a lot of mistakes and hopefully, you know, we can help bring some of that learning here um, and and help the, the city grow up in maybe a, a different way that it might have grown up if, if we didn't come. So if McWinney's known for their innovative practices with the built environment and with real estate, Linda, I think Rand Construction is known for similar innovative practices but to develop, to develop relationships and the human side of things with your business. Over your tenure, what have you done to stay ahead of the market and ensure Rand's success across the country? Worked really hard. <laughs> it's a great answer. Um, when I started RAND, uh, my original plan was to, uh, to consider our company more like a professional service firm than um, an old traditional, what we used to call muddy boots company. So I was looking to find people who were really passionate about building. And we, I was looking to find clients who were sophisticated, design sensitive, and wanted to partner. And those happened to be corporations, law firms in Washington. We have a lot of associations. In my career as an entrepreneur, I've known the joys of, of, of success and the, and the downfalls of just very difficult times. So one of the things that I did was I worked very hard on the people side. Yes, we have BIM, and yes, we have all the innovations, and yes, that has kept us ahead. But I looked at the people in our industry because we, we have people who are college educated, and we have people who are trade educated. And I said, how can I, how can I make them both uh, successful and get along with each other and respect each other. So at Rand Construction, uh, with no questions asked, if you need a personal loan, you can come in and get a loan for $3,000 and write a promissory note or an IOU note because we respect every single person in our company and there are people in our company who work paycheck to paycheck. But the theme of today is really resilience. And so I wanted to share with you, I keep this on my wall in my office. It's called the top 10 characteristics of resilience. And I won't read all of them to you. But I, I think that innovation, it, 
just on the human capital side, as you said, is where, is where the American dream really lies. And unless we continue to innovate with our human capital, the needs of our people, then we will fall behind. So one of them is called growth mindset. It's not that I'm so smart. I just stay with problems longer than others do. Albert Einstein. This one is optimism. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Leonard Cohen. Sense of meaning. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Pablo Picasso. So if anyone would like a copy of this that you can put up in your offices to inspire uh, yourself uh, in these difficult times, resilience will get us through. I am, because I am uh, physically located in Washington, I completely understand your frustration because I live with these people every day. And I remember how people used to actually get along and like each other and respect each other. And now uh, uh, there are family dinners where you can't talk politics. There are uh, business uh, luncheons that that's off the table. And how are we ever going to grow as a nation and keep the American dream if we don't talk to each other? And if we don't talk to each other in really um, polite and um, forced forceful but polite ways. I love that. Um, I've met a couple of your people, Linda, and it's a testament to how you have treated your people because they said they started at the lowest levels and they are now running different states within your organization, so I congratulate you on that. Stephanie, let's stay with the innovation theme. So EDCU is a catalyst for job growth in our market. They're a catalyst for bringing increased capital here. Is there a story you can tell us or an experience you've had where your team has won a deal and approached it with innovation and creativity? So EDC Utah has been around since 1987, so I could spend the whole rest of the day <laughs> talking about this. Uh, but a couple points I want to make. One is that our team is not just the 17 people who work in our office. Our, our team is the private sector. Our team is the economic developers at the community level. Our team is the thought partners that we have and, and the state itself. We never win a deal just by ourselves. Um, so while we have a scrappy team who will go to the mat for a project, and one of my favorite stories is um, we had a client that was looking to do something out by the Great Salt Lake, a manufacturing operation. They went out there for a site tour. There were bugs flying around. Anybody who's been to the Great Salt Lake has, has seen this. Um, they were worried about their air handling equipment. And so they, we sent somebody on our team up there with a jar to catch some of these bugs, drove them up to Utah State to talk to a professor of entomology, identify what they were, and understand whether that was going to be a problem for the client. So you know, we can get scrappy in real time with clients. But I really think that the innovation and creativity happens where nobody sees it. It happens in the office. It happens benchmarking against other markets. It happens understanding where the trends are going and getting ready for them. And some of the things that we do all the time that you know people know us as the white glove concierge service for out-of-state companies coming into the state, not as many people know that 60% of the projects we work on 
are already in Utah. It, they have a Utah presence. They're deciding where their next piece of growth is going to be. We run a program called Know the Customer, where we interview 60 to 70 Utah CEOs a year to understand what their pain points are. First of all, we're looking for those growth opportunities and anywhere we need to play defense. But we also compile that data and get it up to the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity to help them make policy decisions. The second piece is that we actively work with our municipal partners to help them grow their own economic development strategies. And, you know, Cedar City doesn't want to be Salt Lake City. <laughs> Every city in this state has a different vision of success and a different um, dream for their economic development future. And so we use our research team and our community strategy team to try to arm them with the data they need to make good decisions and the skills they need to present themselves as the opportunities come up. And I, I just want to say that we had 12 project wins in rural Utah in FY22. That was a high watermark for EDC Utah. Um, we have a bunch in the pipeline this year. There are examples all over the place. I could name a handful. Box Elder County is killing it. Cedar City is ripping the cover off the ball. Uh, and then there's some that are emerging, like there's a fantastic industrial park on I-70 in Sevier County that is underutilized and the next thing that's going to go. So um, keep your eye on rural Utah. Um, you know, we're, we're doing the best that we can to help them out, and, and they're helping themselves too. We're going to turn to Natalie to close things out, and then hopefully we'll have a couple minutes here for some audience questions. But Natalie, we should know shortly if Utah's going to be getting the 2030 Olympics. That was a game changer for us in 2002 in a lot of ways, infrastructure, capital coming into the market, companies wanting to be here. If we're awarded the games, what are the impacts you see and uh, how do you see that as an opportunity for Utah? Well, we can look at the Olympics and know what the economic impact would be. And the reason we can do that is we know how much outside money comes in. There's a you know big TV contract that comes in. We know how we can estimate how many visitors come in, how much they spend. And uh, we, we did that in 2002, and now we can do even better because we've done it once, right? Second time, you can always do better. Uh, when we do that, we find the Olympics is about a, uh, you know, 30,000 job years of employment, about a $3.9 billion economic impact. Uh, I think it's about 64 million in state and local government revenue, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> I don't think that's why you host the games. All right, it's, it has an economic impact, it's powerful, but you, you host the games for a whole bunch of other reasons. Number one, uh, the power of sport to make the world a better place, to change, life, to change lives, that's a, that's a movement I wanna be a part of. We've already been a part of it, we're already Olympic City. Uh, why else do you do it? Well, you engage internationally, and I think the data would bear out that Salt Lake City punches above its weight internationally in part because of our bright spotlight of the 2002 Olympic Winter Games. I work on the University of Utah campus. Uh, opening ceremony in 2002 had like almost two billion people you know, watching it, the television audience. That, that's hard to get. So I'm all about the Olympics because we, become a, we, we fortify ourselves as a winter sports capital. It increases our confidence as a community. We get better in every way, and we become part of an international movement to make the world a better place. I'll, I'll leave it at that, that, but exciting, and we will know, and we, will, we are America's choice, and we will either be it in 2030 or 2034. We're almost out of time, so I'm gonna take a minute. I wanna get to a couple of these questions, so maybe we'll do a little bit more of like a lightning round, quick answers, but um, Stephanie, this one's for you. Do we lose companies to Texas? Who do we lose 
Who do we lose to the most when we are losing a deal that doesn't come to Utah? That's a great question, and it depends. There's so many reasons. We've lost, um, you know, we actually study that data internally to see if there's anything that we can learn from. Sometimes it's a reason that we can't control, like we lost because my brother-in-law lives in this other community, right? Um, sometimes we lose because one of their decision drivers is something that we can't change about our community, like, you know, the the... Our census data from 2010 to 2020, we are one of the most rapidly diversifying markets in the country. Um, but if you're looking for a, a huge you know, population right now, we might not be it. Um, so Texas, we have lost deals to Texas, um, but I would say it's, it's not like there's one location that's, that's winning against us. It, it really is dependent upon the individual project's decision drivers. Perfect. Uh, we got time for one more question. Natalie, I'm going to send it your way. We've got, a, we've got multiple questions coming in about the water situation in Utah. Is there something you can touch on that we don't read in the news? Are, are you in meetings or behind the scenes or something else you can offer to this group? Uh, okay, you know, so yeah, we're a dry state, uh, but if you look at it, we're also a very urban state. We all locate largely close to the mountains, even in Cedar City, right? Even if you go south. Uh, and that's because the mountains provide us with plentiful water. Look at this year. Uh, I don't worry as much about water as maybe some in the audience do. Why is that? About 70% of our water goes to agriculture. That's a commonly known fact. Uh, agriculture's one to 2% of our economy. That doesn't mean you want to do less agriculture. It means you want to get more efficient at agriculture. Legislatures all over this, uh, they spent uh, $400 million this year on water. Uh, $200 million of that is going to ag water optimization. They'll be lining canals, changing irrigation, uh, changing water rights, things that don't even cost money, but making it so you can let the water flow downstream and make it to the lake and not lose your water right. This state absolutely is on top of this. Your legislature and governor have turned on a dime. Am I worried about it? Sure, we need to do smart things, but it, I don't see it as a limiting factor in our growth if we have the political will and leadership to do the things we need to do. I love that. We're going to leave it there, everybody. So please thank our panelists today. We're happy to be up here. Can I get another round of applause for our all-star panel? Liven it up, people. There we go. When I'm talking about quality content and we're talking about the things that you can learn, it's from experts like that. So I hope everybody got something from that conversation. I hope everybody wants to get more out of conversations like that because that certainly is not the end of that conversation, but hopefully just the beginning of the things that we can learn from one another as we're you know, engaging and networking and doing events like this. So. We're now at the point of this entire event where when I say eyes up, ears up, I mean it. So all of my ushers, and you know who you are, and all of my panelists for the breakouts and all of my moderators, this is your cue. Please stand up, head to your locations. The rest of us will see you there momentarily. The rest of you stay seated. Okay, the next disruption for how we run this event looks like this. Instead of the rest of the day being panel after panel after panel and you just stay in your seat and keep checking your emails and doing the LinkedIn and all this stuff, that's no longer an option. Instead, 
Remember that book that you used to read when you were in middle school? At least for me. Some of you guys are older. Some are younger. But the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yeah? You guys know what I'm talking about. Today you're going to choose your own adventure. And here's what that looks like. We have a series of panels with industry expert panelists talking about a variety of subjects that you have to choose which one you want to hear from the most. And that's going to frustrate some of you, and I'm glad. You can send comments to Amy at NAOP later, but ultimately, I want you to have to choose because I want you to engage. I want you to go to the panel that you're going to be most interested in going to because that's the one that you had to choose over all the others. So you chose the one that you want to learn the most from. This is what that looks like. We have, it's not showing on the screen, a couple of panels. The first one is our multifamily panel. This is a combination of folks including Mark Jensen, Alex Lowe, Kurt Turley, and Jake Wood, along with Danny Wall from the University of Utah MRED program moderating. If you would be interested in hearing from the multifamily panel, pay attention. Your instructions will be to head up that staircase where that blue icon that says multifamily and has a big white icon of multifamily apartment icons on there, that's your cue. You're going to get up in just a minute and you're going to follow that usher and they're going to take you just up and around the corner to where that panel is. However, your next choice. You would rather go to industrial and hear from Ben Richardson and Angela Eldridge and Andy Blunt and Ryan Simmons, moderated by Braden Moore. You're going to go to the industrial panel up that staircase. And I know you're looking at me. If you're looking at me, you should be looking where I'm pointing. There's another icon for an industrial panel. Same thing. Head up the stairs, just to your left, right around the corner. If you're interested instead to hear about retail and whether or not it's dead, you can head to the right, the same path as the multifamily, except when you get to the top, you're going to go a different direction. And it, you'll have a lively conversation with Troy Hardy, Danny Woodbury, Doug Burrell, Tanner Olson, narrated by Jace Bankhead. We're not done, folks. If, there we go. If instead of a one of the familiar food groups, you would like to hear an interesting case study about what's actually happening in Ogden on the Union Station redevelopment project with McQuinney and Jay Fisher and UTA and Ogden and Design Workshop, you're going to want to head up the first staircase right behind these lights that are blinding me currently. And you're going to follow the choo-choo train icon right up to the top, ladies and gentlemen. All right. And if you would rather hear about the Atlanta Braves and how to successfully deliver on a sports-anchored entertainment district like the Battery in Atlanta, you're going to want to head right back in this corner where Eric is holding up that sign. 
you guys have some options, but you only have a split second to figure it out. So I'm happy to say that you should have a conundrum in front of you, you should be frustrated, and you should go pick the one that makes the most sense for you today. So on that note, ushers, please hold up your signs. The rest of you, choose your adventure, and we'll see from you, hear back from you in just a little bit.